Hello and welcome to the February 1st, 2022 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, with a quick overview of the new material you'll find if you go to annals.org. I know how busy our listeners are, so let's get right to the new articles. First is a case control study that found that despite a very low absolute risk, there is an increased relative risk of carditis associated with BNT162B2 vaccination, more commonly referred to as the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID vaccine. Case reports of carditis after vaccination have accrued globally, but careful study of whether these case reports represent a true association has been lacking. Researchers from the University of Hong Kong studied 160 patients with carditis, the cases, and 15,033 patients without carditis, the controls, to examine the potential risk of carditis associated with vaccination with two different COVID vaccines, the Pfizer-BioNTech or the coronavac vaccines. The researchers matched each case patient with 10 control patients based on age, sex, and date of hospital admission. Among the 160 carditis cases, 20 occurred with Pfizer-BioNTech and 7 with corona vaccination. Patients who received the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine were three times more likely to experience carditis than unvaccinated patients. Patients who received Coronavac had a similar risk as unvaccinated patients to experience carditis. The researchers observed that carditis associated with the Pfizer vaccine mostly occurred in men and after the second dose. Cumulative incidence of carditis after vaccination was 0.57 per 100,000 doses of the BNT162B2 vaccine and 0.31 per 100,000 doses of Coronavac demonstrating a very low absolute risk of carditis after either vaccination. Of note, none of the 20 case patients with carditis after vaccination required ICU care or died, while of the 133 patients with carditis not associated with vaccination, 14 required ICU care and 12 died. Next is the latest update of the American College of Physicians' rapid living practice points on the antibody response to SARS-CoV-2 after initial infection and protection against reinfection in a systematic review that summarizes evidence on which the ACP based its recommendations, researchers from the Portland VA Research Foundation identified studies on the risk of reinfection and duration of protection following SARS-CoV-2. They found strong evidence that the immunity afforded by recent infection conferred substantial protection against symptomatic reinfection with the alpha variant of COVID-19 for at least seven months. However, the durability of protection in the setting of the Delta and Omicron variants is unknown. Based on the evidence in this updated review and prior versions of the review, ACP advises against using SARS-CoV-2 antibody tests for diagnosis of SARS-CoV-2 infection. ACP also advises against using SARS-CoV-2 antibody tests to predict the degree or duration of natural immunity, particularly in light of different variants. The authors note that these practice points do not evaluate vaccine-acquired immunity or cellular immunity. Vaccination is currently the best clinical recommendation for preventing infection, reinfection, and serious illness from SARS-CoV-2 infection and its variants. Additionally, a previous practice point concerning the use of antibody tests to estimate community prevalence of SARS-CoV-2 infection has been retired due to the limited relevance as vaccinations have become widely available in the U.S.
Evidence is emerging about natural immunity from COVID-19, but there is still important uncertainty about how protection varies between individuals, how long it lasts, and the role of variants. In light of these evidence gaps, it is important that individuals and communities continue to use all available tools, especially vaccination, to help slow and reduce further spread. The next article concerns two relatively common conditions, chronic kidney disease and gout. Chronic kidney disease is a common comorbidity in patients with gout. The American College of Rheumatology recommends allopurinol to lower serum urate levels to below 0.36 millimoles per liter for patients experiencing gout flares, TOFI, or radiographic joint damage. Lowering serum urate levels is also thought to be beneficial to reduce the progression of chronic kidney disease. But two recent randomized controlled trials suggested that allopurinol was associated with a twofold increased risk for death in patients with renal disease who did not have gout. Researchers studied electronic health records for 5,277 adults in the United Kingdom with gout and moderate to severe chronic kidney disease to examine the relationship of allopurinol initiation, allopurinol dose escalation, and achieving target serum urate level after allopurinol initiation to all-cause mortality. Mortality over five-year follow-up in propensity score matched cohorts was examined for each dose stage strategy. The data showed that neither allopurinol initiation nor achieving target serum urate level with allopurinol nor allopurinol dose escalation were associated with an increased risk for death in patients with gout and concurrent chronic kidney disease. According to the authors, these findings should alleviate concern about utilizing allopurinol in this patient population. There is much concerted effort to promote racial ethnic diversity in the U.S. physician workforce. Despite these efforts, a brief research report published on January 25th found that marked disparities in racial ethnic representation persist in internal medicine residency programs. A racially and ethnically diverse physician workforce could improve access to care, communication, patient satisfaction, and health outcomes, particularly for underserved, marginalized patient groups. Despite this need, members of racially, ethnically minoritized groups are still underrepresented. These include those identifying as American Indian or Alaska Native, Native Hawaiian, other Pacific Islander, Black or African American, and Hispanic, Latino, or of Spanish origin. Researchers from the University of Washington School of Medicine studied data from the American Association of Medical Colleges to elucidate trends in representation for internal medicine residency applicants and matriculants who identified as underrepresented in medicine. Between 2010 and 2018, a total of 214,656 individuals applied to internal medicine residency programs and 87,489 matriculated. Of those, 13.2% of the applicants and 10.6% of the matriculated students identified as a member of a race or ethnicity underrepresented in medicine. In examining disaggregated matriculant data for those underrepresented groups, only the proportion of matriculants who are Hispanic, Latino, or of Spanish origin significantly changed. For every year studied, a greater proportion of white persons were represented among matriculants compared with applicants. According to the study authors, diversifying internal medicine residencies will require dramatic, innovative approaches before, during, and after the application process. The next article provides an interesting historical perspective on the impact of pandemics. 
the authors report a study of continuous monthly mortality data for more than 100 years in Switzerland, Sweden, and Spain, and found that excess deaths associated with the COVID-19 pandemic reached greater peaks than those of other periods of excess deaths since 1918. Switzerland, Sweden, and Spain are particularly suitable for an overtime perspective of pandemic-related excess mortality because they have reliable continuous data on death counts and were militarily neutral during both world wars. So excess mortality could not be attributable to war-related deaths. Historical data may help to support pandemic planning. In collaboration with the Swiss Federal Statistical Office, researchers from the universities of Zurich, Bern, and Oslo estimated age-specific monthly excess deaths from all causes for Switzerland, Sweden, and Spain for 2020 to 2021 and other pandemic periods since the end of the 19th century in chronologic order. The authors collected data for monthly all-cause-related deaths from each country's statistical office and used yearly data on population size and age structure to account for demographic shifts over time. They found that for all three countries, 2020 marked the highest number of excess deaths since 1918. However, excess deaths in 1918 were estimated to be six to seven times higher than in 2020. The relative excess deaths in 2020 was 12.5% in Switzerland, 8.5% in Sweden, and 17.3% in Spain. The researchers speculate that excess mortality in 2020 might have been even higher if not for worldwide public health interventions. Next is a case report of electrocardiographic artifacts synchronized with cardiac rhythm that suggested a pathological condition in a healthy patient. The authors describe how identifying and repositioning the suspect electrode and repeating the electrocardiogram produced an accurate reading. Pre-exposure prophylaxis, or PrEP, holds great promise for reducing HIV infection, but adherence over the long term can be difficult to achieve. A long-acting injectable PrEP regimen with cavatogravir could improve adherence to PrEP, but the drug is much more expensive than currently available daily oral regimens. Researchers from Harvard Medical School used the cost-effectiveness of preventing AIDS complications model to simulate a population prescribed PrEP with risk factors for HIV similar to the participants of the major trial of Cabotogravir. The authors then modeled four strategies over 10 years, no PrEP, generic oral PrEP, branded oral PrEP, and long-acting injectable PrEP. They calculated projected clinical benefits, including primary transmission, quality-adjusted life years saved, and mortality. They also calculated the cost of HIV care and PrEP, as well as incremental cost-effectiveness ratios over the same 10-year period. They found that after calculating 10-year clinical outcomes, total primary transmissions were highest for no PrEP usage and lowest for the long-acting PrEP usage. The authors found that at a range of willingness to pay thresholds between 50,000 and 300,000 per quality, cabotogravir for PrEP among those with high risk for HIV would only provide good value for money if its annual price was less than $6,600 higher than generic oral PrEP. The authors conclude that long-acting cabotogravir would only provide a good value for the money if its annual price was less than generic oral PrEP which is less than half of Cabotogreer's current cost. According to the authors of the accompanying editorial from the State University of New York at Albany and Emory University, this analysis yields important findings about the economic aspects of long-term injectable PrEP 
and sets the groundwork for addressing pressing questions related to policy, programs, and social justice related to HIV management and prevention. Real-world evidence on inactivated COVID-19 vaccines against the Delta variant of SARS-CoV-2 is limited, leaving an important gap in the evidence base to inform immunization programs around the world. The last article I'll highlight in the podcast helps to fill this gap. To estimate inactivated vaccine effectiveness against the Delta variant, the authors of this article conducted a retrospective cohort study based on the first outbreak of this variant in mainland China that occurred in Guangdong between May and June 2021 and included 10,805 laboratory-confirmed adult cases and their close contacts. Participants were categorized as unvaccinated, partially vaccinated, meaning one dose, and fully vaccinated with two doses. Of these individuals, 1.3% developed infection, 1.2% developed symptomatic infections, 1.1% had pneumonia, and 0.2% developed severe illness. The researchers estimated that effectiveness of full vaccination against infection was 51.8%, against symptomatic infection was 60.4%, and against pneumonia was 78.4%. Most important, full vaccination was 100% effective against severe illness. By contrast, the effectiveness of partial vaccination was far lower, for example, only 11.6% effective against pneumonia. Further evidence that efforts must be made to ensure full vaccination of target populations. Also new is latest Annals on Call podcast. This episode features a discussion of the risk of recurrent venous thromboembolism following subsegmental pulmonary embolism. And that brings us to the end of the February 1st Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I hope I've piqued your interest in going to annals.org to take a closer look at some of the new articles I've mentioned. Stay well, and please return in two weeks for more Annals highlights. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson and Andrew Langman for their technical support.